Well, it is, uh, it's great to be with you. It's great to have live people in a room. I've preached at a, at a number of places over the last couple of months, and most of the time it's been to a camera in a room with maybe one or two people in it, and I hate it. I don't like it at all. Um, I'm glad we can do it, however, and I'm glad that, that people are, you know, able to kind of come on in via this, this avenue, but I'm, I'm really excited just to be with you. Really, truly excited to actually have people respond or, or perhaps nod off like, you know, is normal, whatever. It looks like at least you're here, and so that's, that's fantastic. If, if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it out, turn to the book of Luke. We continue on in this series that you're in as a ministry. We're in Luke chapter 9 today, and we're looking at just a short text verses 46 to 50, I have, I have a, lot, a, a lot of stuff that I want to hit today. I have a lot on my mind, and so um, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to jump right into to the text. And, and the topic, the main theme that we're going to go through today is the topic of pride. going to talk a lot about pride today, and, and today is your lucky day because I'm an expert on pride. Um, I have a PhD in pride. Pride is something that I've been fighting my entire life, but here's the thing. I don't think I'm alone in that. I, I think this is a relevant very relevant topic for all of it, us. It's practical. Uh, it's also a topic that's altogether important to it because there are a few things more dangerous to us than pride. As we know, as Peter writes, and in fact, he, he takes it out of a, a text in the Old Testament, but in 1 Peter 5, Peter states there that God opposes the proud. He stands in opposition against the proud, and it's only to the humble that God gives his grace. And so it's an entirely important topic for that reason. None of us will come to know God if, if we don't deal with our pride. So let's go to our text where I'm going to point out from these five verses what I'm calling four manifestations of pride. Four things that Four things that pride produces. That's what we're going to do. And then we're going to end by looking at the one and only solution to it. And so if you like taking notes, um, let me give you these four manifestations one at a time. The first is found in verse 46. I'm calling it the manifestation of disunity. This is the first thing that pride pride brings. Look at verse 46 with me. I'll just read the verse and then stop there and, and unpack it with you a little bit. We read, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Just stop there. Greatest what? Which of them was the greatest what? What were they arguing about? Well, what the disciples, that's the them in context, the 12, they were arguing about who the greatest would be in the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. That's what they're arguing about. Who, in other words, would have the supreme position under Jesus? Who would sit on the right and the left-hand side of Jesus while he sat on his throne? That's what they were arguing about. But where does this come from? Meaning, why are they arguing about this right now? Why, why all of a sudden, in verse 46, are they doing this strange thing, the 12, hanging out together, arguing about this particular topic. Well, the reason why they do is because of what they've just come through. Specifically, what they've come through and observed 
in chapter 9 of, of the Gospel of Luke. Just, just to remind you of it, and I, I know you've taken the last number of weeks to go through it, but just think of the things that the disciples had experienced. Going all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sends the 12 out, but before he sends them out, he gives them, grants them great authority to do what? Cure diseases and to cast out demons. Later, they saw Jesus feed the masses in the same chapter, feed the 5,000 with leftovers, leftovers that that the disciples had to collect, they were a part of that. Thereafter, Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ. And he was affirmed by Jesus when he said, so blessed are you, Peter, for the Father revealed that to you. But there's more. There was a transfiguration where, where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in his full glory. And, oh yeah, Moses and Elijah were there too. And in addition to that, they heard the Father declare out of the heavens, this is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then immediately thereafter, coming down from the mountain, Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy whom they couldn't. What a chapter. Like, that's chapter 9 in Luke. But think about it. Just put yourself in the position of these 12. You're part of that group. You're on the inside. I mean, you hang with Jesus. Jesus had many people, many disciples, but you're part of a very select group. In fact, you're part of a group that Jesus handpicked. You're part of that group. He, he had chosen you to be a part of that group as he was ushering in a new kingdom. You're, you're part of his inner sanctum. That, that would be very intoxicating to be a part of that group. I mean, I've heard politicians say that there is only one thing more intoxicating than money, and that is power. And, and I think I get this to some degree. Uh, when I planted West Side uh, eons ago, Early on at Westside, one of the owners of the Canucks attended our church, and I became a, a good friend of his, not overstating it. I would say for the about first year and a half or two of the ministry, I was as close to him as anybody else in the ministry. And I don't know if you've ever had a close relationship with a billionaire before, but it's a pretty great thing. It's a pretty cool thing. I mean, I got to experience uh, things with this person that I've never experienced before in my life. We didn't just go to dinner together. We went to dinner at restaurants that he owned. Like, that's great. And we would go to hockey games, and oh yeah, he owned the hockey team. And we would sit at, we would sit at owner's, owner's own dining room tables and eat prime rib together and watch, watch the game. And between periods, we would go down to the souvenir shop and walk in there, and he would say to me, take whatever you want. Just take whatever you want. And we would just walk out. It was great. I remember one time uh, during periods going to a hockey game with him, walking into a room between periods that had about three or four assistant coaches in it and the general manager as well. And when we walked in, and I know it's all about him, but when we walked in, they all stood up. And they were very interested in me for some reason. And I think it's because I was with the owner. And I got to be honest, that's intoxicating. That, that feel, even though I know I'm a nobody, 
being with him, having that sort of access, and, and having people jump up, and, and hanging out in places where I normally couldn't, having all of that because of that relationship, that was entirely intoxicating, intoxicating. But as we go back to our text, to a much, a much greater degree, that's what's going on in it. They were close with Jesus, the Messiah, the, the promised one. But what's the problem with that? What's the issue? Well, the problem is the disciples had an entirely wrong perception of the kind of kingdom Jesus was ushering in. And tied to that, they had an entirely wrong perception of what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. They had an earthly kingdom in mind. They had an earthly throne in mind. They, they, they believed Jesus was going to topple the Romans and sit on an earthly throne. And they had a, a worldly view of greatness that equated greatness with power and entitlement and, and position and status and access. And so they argue among themselves about who should be the most prominent person in that kingdom under Christ. Not, not surprising, really. For this is what pride so often produces, disunity. Pride leads to discord and, and strife and splits. It leads to divorce. It comes with vitriol and contempt and, and eye rolls. It's posted unabashedly. It's posted on Twitter and Instagram, and Facebook, it's, it's birthed out of a belief that we deserve better, or at least better than them, whoever they are. We deserve to be recognized. We deserve to be heard. We deserve to have a, a right to certain positions or experiences or rewards. And if we don't get those things and somebody else does, we fight and, and we argue. James in his epistle, speaks to this, and you can read this on the screen. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he writes, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel because of pride. In stark contrast, Paul writes this in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, pride, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I've uh, been married almost 26 years, and I've, I've learned two things in those 26 years, two, two very important things. The first is this. It is not my role to change my wife. It's, it's not my role. That's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, he may use me. He may use me, but that's not my job. My job, my job is not to change my wife. Things won't go better simply out of me trying to make my wife different. It doesn't work like that. That's the first thing that I've discovered. But the second, and it's tied to it, 
is that most arguments in my marriage come because one or both of us feel we deserve something we aren't getting. We have a passion in our hearts that wants to be satisfied. What causes fights among you? That. Now, now please understand, I'm not saying that it's not okay to look after our own interests. In fact, Paul says as much in the text that I just read out of Philippians 2. But not only our own. We are never, doesn't matter what relationship we're talking about, marriage relationship, familial relationships, friendships, those types of things. Yes, we are to make sure that our interests, what we need is taken care of, but never are we allowed to go through life only thinking about ours and ours alone. We are to take care of the interests of others and keep them in mind. And and the reason is, is because a high majority of arguments come when we fail to do so. And the result, again, is what? It's disunity. And if, if that's left to fester in certain relationships, it leads to discord and faction and divorce and so on and so on and so on. That's what pride manifests. But not only. It manifests... Secondly, depravity. To be more, more specific, it actually reveals our depravity. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 47. There's a phrase in it that, that I want to hammer down into. It's so very important. Verse 47, but Jesus, and, and just notice what comes next, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, really important phrase, took a child and put him, now that word child, toddler, small baby, maybe a little bit more than, than a baby, but certainly not an adolescent, put a child and put him by his side. Again, let's, let's stop there. If this event in, in our text is actually recorded in a couple of different gospels. And in, in Mark's account of this event, he writes that Jesus comes to the, the disciples. He's not part of the conversation that they're having in verse 46. And he comes to the disciples and he asks them, what were you guys talking about? And Mark records that they kept silent. But Jesus, as we read here, Knowing the, the reasoning of their hearts pressed in. Why? Why? Why does he press in? Well, the answer is because their heartfelt reasoning led each to conclude that they were the greatest. And it's that type of heart that Jesus came to transform. It, it's, it's that type of heart that needs to be transformed. It, it's that type of heart that can keep us from coming into relationship with him. And, and here's the thing about the reason. Just think about the reasoning of their hearts. I am sure as they thought about themselves and were arguing with the, with the other 11, they each could have come up with great reasons why they should be number one under Christ. Like when Jesus set up his kingdom, I bet each of them had in their minds really good reasons for it. Think about it. John, John is the one who's referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. John was Jesus' best friend. John was the disciple Jesus leaves Mary with. I'm sure he could have argued about that. 
He loves me most, man. Peter? Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom to Peter. Peter was blessed by, by the Father. Peter walked on water. Everybody else stayed in the boat, right? I have more guts than you. I should be number one. Peter, James, and John, that triumvirate, they got to experience things the other nine disciples didn't get to experience, like the transfiguration that I just talked about. Judas, he's good with money, right? Kingdom needs a good money guy, right? Matthew, great testimony. I was a tax collector called Levi. Now I'm Matthew, and I left everything to follow Jesus. What about Simon the Zealot? He used to be a zealot. That's a great testimony. Probably killed a few people. Now he's a follower of Jesus. I should be number one. Andrew, one of the first chosen, and on and on. But any heart, please hear this. Any heart that reasons that it is greater than another, when our hearts do that, that, that we are, are greater than another, it is showing what? It is showing its depravity. It reveals itself. Why, why do I say that? Well, because of something Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. Again, you can read this on the screen. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Thoughts like what? Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, and here's our word, pride. I'm, I'm greater than they. Leading to foolishness. Jeremiah writes, and this isn't on the screen, but Jeremiah writes famously that our hearts can be wickedly deceptive. That the reasoning, reasoning of our hearts can deceive us, which is why the psalmist prays, search our hearts, Lord, and, and reveal any wayward, wayward thoughts within them. Let, let me wrap up uh, this particular point, this specific manifestation, which is some basic pastoral counsel to you before we go on from, from it. Don't ever be true to your heart. Or simply follow your heart. Unless you've first taken your heart and you've placed it under the obedience of Christ and his word. Don't follow your heart. Don't trust your heart simply by listening to it and it alone. Our hearts can be deceptive guides and the worst of counselors. And so go to his word. Submit to his word. Get some other people in your life and go, this is what I'm thinking about. This is my sense, but, but help me. Press in. What do you think? That's what Jesus was doing. I, I know your hearts, guys. I can see inside. And it needs to change because your reasoning is not, is not good. So pride uh, manifests itself in disunity it, it reveals and manifests itself in depravity, but there's a third, a third manifestation that we see, and that is the manifestation of hostility 
Or if you want to call it enmity, you could do that as well. Let me show you what I mean. Let's pick things up again in verse 47, but we'll read to verse 48 as well. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. If you like visual aids, you'll love this visual aid. This is a great visual aid. In that society, at that time, children represented the last and the least. I know we have a tough time thinking about that today because we almost deify children. Total opposite back in those days. In fact, children weren't allowed to start studying the Torah, the law of God, until they were 12 years old. So it was deemed a waste of time to spend time with children until they were 12. In fact, one rabbi, and I came across this in my studies this week, he stated, morning sleep, midday wine, and chattering with children destroy a man. That's what they thought of kids. There, there is a reason why, when you read through the Gospels, why more, on, more than on one occasion, the disciples try to keep kids from going to Jesus. Why? Because they were beneath Jesus. It would have been seen as a waste of time for Jesus to spend time with kids. But Jesus, as we know, and that's what the sweet thing about the Gospel of Luke is, is about especially, and you've learned this already, in sweet contrast, he had all the time in the world to spend with children. Don't hinder the kids from coming to me, Jesus said. He had all the time in the world to spend with children, but not only children, lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and women were at a time they were all considered second-class citizens in that kingdom, but not in his. He has a different kingdom in mind. As we look at this visual aid and you sort of picture Jesus with, with a toddler perhaps on his lap or at least... Next to him, what is to be our takeaway? I mean, in, in, the other, in other words, what is the point of the visual aid? Well, let me give you a couple of things that I think we should take from this. First of all, we are to see that Jesus accepts all, even the so-called least, and therefore, so should we. If Jesus accepts all, if he is willing to put all of the all of us by his side, who are we not to? That's one takeaway. As Paul writes in Romans 15, again, not on the screen, but you can note it, Romans 15, verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How, how has Christ welcomed us? Well, he's welcomed all of us. He's welcomed us in spite of our sin and imperfections. He's welcomed us even though we haven't had everything figured out yet. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And therefore, a second takeaway, there are no classes, there are no castes, there are no categories in Jesus' kingdom. In his kingdom, as Paul writes in two different places, there is no Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, barbarian and Scythian, but Christ is all, 
and in all. There, there is no special status placed on <coughs> position or citizenship or, or lineage or color or gender or income level, and therefore there should be no distinctions made in his kingdom and arguments to the contrary. If, if you've studied the book of, of James, you know, you know what James says to this. The situation in, in the church that James is writing to is there were distinctions being made between the rich and the poor, and the, the rich were getting the best seats, and the poor were told to sit in the back. And what does James state in James chapter 2, verse 4? He tells his readers, when we do that, when we make distinctions, we become judges with evil thoughts. A third takeaway. By, by use of this child, we are to be reminded of how Jesus accepts us all. How does he do that? As children. He accepts us and he only accepts us as children. Jesus, in fact, in fact only accepts us when we exhibit faith like a child. See, the picture of the child being brought to Jesus is a picture of how all of us come to Jesus. What does faith like a child look like? It's a humble faith. It's a, a dependent faith. It's, it's a clinging faith. It's a trusting faith that places all reliance on him. That's what faith like a child looks like. It's like a two-year-old standing in a crib waiting to be picked up by mommy and, and brought downstairs for some egos. You know what I mean? It's like that. Mommy, pick me up, mommy. Feed me, mommy. I want to be with you, mommy. You're my world, mommy. <coughs> That's what it looks like. That's us and how we're to view ourselves and all others in Christ. All others in Christ. By, by the way, as you look back to these two verses, and specifically verse 48, they are written in the positive, but what is the opposite? If, if you read them in the negative, well, when we make distinctions and in our pride place ourselves above others, we not only reject others, we reject Jesus. What we do to the least of these, we do unto him, as he says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. When we reject the so-called least, we reject Jesus. And when we reject Jesus, we reject the one who sent Jesus, that being the Father in heaven. And when we reject the Father in heaven, we reject the salvation that the Father offers only through Jesus. That's what pride does. It, it births hostility ultimately against the Father. And enmity. It leads to, to rejection, the rejection of the salvation that comes from our Father. So what do, we, what do we see? What have we seen so far? Well, we've seen the manifestation by way of pride leading to disunity, arguments. We've seen it reveal depravity. It reveals what our hearts are like. It's a litmus test. We've seen it lead to hostility, Perhaps if we reject and put people in categories and see ourselves as above others, and then finally, for the sake of our time today, it leads to exclusivity. 
Take a look at verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Here's another example of pride. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. I love these two verses. There, there is so much in these two verses. I, I wish I could just take the time just to hit these two verses how I'd like, but let's at least, just for a couple minutes, consider what's going on. What seems to be happening is that there was someone who heard about Jesus and perhaps for a time followed Jesus, listened to Jesus, learned from Jesus, took things in from Jesus, but no longer follows Jesus physically. He's, he's not part of the group. He's not part of that large group that is following Jesus from place to place, but he's still part of the team. And he's a great part of the team. He's, he's casting out demons in Jesus' name, but because he's not part of the group, the disciples tell him to stop. Why? I mean, just think about that. Hey, stop. Stop casting out demons in Jesus' name. Just think about that conversation. Stop. I would rather have the demons stay. Why? I mean, why would the disciples do this? Well, because that's what they do. That's their gig. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 9. He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. That's, what they, that's their job. They cast out demons. Jesus gave them power to do that, and they don't like the idea of someone else doing it. And so they tell him to stop. And Jesus responds, as we read in verse 50, don't tell him to stop, for the one who is not against you is for you. What are we to do with this? Well, as, as we begin wrapping up slowly, let, let me leave you with one major takeaway coming out of these two verses. Our pride, our collective pride in this case, just notice John said to Jesus, we told him to stop. Our collective pride can lead us to conclude that our group or our tribe or our, our family perhaps or our school, or our church, or our denomination, or our network, or even our movement knows best. And if someone is not part of it, we'd prefer that they just stop. That's what collective pride can do. I know I not only know this to be true theoretically, I have felt and experienced this firsthand. This is prominent. Verses 49 and 50 is prominent today. And to my shame, I have been part of the guilty party at times too. And why it's so sad is not only because it exhibits pride, but because it leads to exclusion and it leads to derision of others. Others who are in Christ. Others who are for Christ. Others who are leading people out of the domain of darkness into light. Who are leading people to freedom from, from bondage to the enemy. People like that. 
But Jesus says, don't tell them to stop. We, we are to be in unity with those who are for Christ. Don't be against them, but encourage them. And, and love them. And pray for them and, and lift them up, even though you may not be in alignment with them on all things. And, and who amongst us is? You know, I'm, an, I'm a complementarian. I've actually taught on that here last time I was here. I'm complementarian in my, my ecclesiology, big word. The, the way I see leadership functioning in the church. But some of my sweetest friends in ministry are, are egalitarian. And, and do you realize that Jesus is going to allow egalitarians into heaven? Can you believe it? Can you believe it? They're going to be there too, man. I, I, am, I am reformed, if you want to use a, a word to describe my theology or specific, spe, specifically my soteriology. And, and the reason I am is because Jesus was too, but, but... I have some great Wesleyan and Armenian friends that I love very much and I have learned much from. I'm glad they're leading churches and ministries in this country. I love it. I'm for them. I don't want them to stop. I also believe people should be baptized on confession of faith. I am... I'm, I'm, I'm a credo-baptist, if you, if you want to use, use that kind of language. I'm anabaptist in that way, but I still read Tim Keller. I still read Tim Keller. Tim Keller would disagree with me on this, but I think he's probably a Christian too. I, I really do. You know what I mean? Like, I think he's on the team I'm a continuationist as it relates to my view of spiritual gifts, and therefore I believe all gifts are for today, but I have learned a, a ton from cessationists like John MacArthur and others like, like him. And although I believe tongues are for today, I, I don't believe that they are a, a necessary sign of spirit infilling, but I know some great Pentecostal leaders who do, and I'm happy to break bread with them. Do you get my point? Look, are, are there things that we should agree on that are, that are beyond debate? Yeah, Paul in Galatians 1 says, if somebody comes and preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. But please understand, that same gospel can't be contained in one church or one denomination or even one, one movement. It's, it's too big. What is the gospel? It's the power of God. Which is why when people ask me, and I, I think I get why they ask the question, but I answer it somewhat differently. Why are there so many denominations that I answer? Because the gospel can't, can't be contained in one denomination. And praise God there's more than one. Praise God that the gospel is way too big for one. It's bigger than that. But what saves people isn't one church or denomination or network. What does? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. That's why. That's what we are to agree on. 
I, I don't want to take the thunder out of what is coming in Luke 10, but in Luke 10, verse 2, and again, you can read this on the screen, Jesus will declare, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Can I, can I implore you? Can I implore you who are watching and you who are here? Don't in your pride discourage the laborers but bless them, pray for them, and pray for more of them. The, the harvest is just too big. Yes, you can disagree with them on some things, but I, can I ask you nicely to perhaps get over yourself and clothe yourselves with humility instead, and me too. Me too. Which, as we close, leads to an all-important question. The question that I say we would wrap up with, if pride ma manifests itself in disunity and depravity and hostility and, and leads to exclusivity, then what's the solution for it? Well, the answer is actually found in last week's text. Just notice what Jesus says in verses 43 and 44. If you were listening last week, this will be a reminder of what Jesus said there. Verse 43, And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, they were marveling at his greatness. Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. There's our answer. You see, Jesus didn't die at the hands of men in spite of his greatness. His greatness was demonstrated in his dying. And, and please hear me, Tri-City. So to us. So to us. Which is why Jesus says, let this sink into your ears. This is what greatness looks like. And so what is the solution to our pride? Look to Jesus and have the same mind. Look to the one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he became a servant, a servant obedient to death, but not only death, but death on the cross. Have that mind among you. Look to the one who did not come to be served, but serve, and gave his life as a ransom for many. Have that mind. Have that mind. The mind of Christ. Clothe yourself with that, for that's what true greatness looks like in Jesus' kingdom, and that's the solution to a problem that we all fight, every single one of us. So look to Jesus. Clothe yourself with Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. Let me pray. And as I, as I do pray, I, I we're going to lead into a time of response. So whether you're here or whether you're watching from home, we always respond.
respond to the teaching of God's word and we're going to respond in, in worship, but also we ask that during this time you consider how, how God is calling you to give to this ministry. If you're a part of this ministry, we ask that you give and you can give online. We also want to pray together. And again, if you're watching from home, there's a, a link on the, on the screen in front of you or on your computer or whatever. You can link there if you need to send a prayer request in. We'd love to receive those so we can pray alongside of you. So just want to encourage you in that way. Let me, let me pray. So Father, I mean, this, this text is so very clear. Um, it's so very clear. Uh, but when we talk about the solution to the pride that we all battle, and we call, we're called um, to battle it by putting on Christ, having the mind of Christ, that, that's something that you have to do. You do that work. And so s- stir in us, stir our affections for you more, change us from one degree to the next, more and more and more. Make this something that we desire, not or simply obedient to, but desire to be like Christ, to, to lay down our lives for the sake of others. We want that mind, but we confess that it's, it's not always our minds. There are many, many moments of every day where we think about ourselves and ourselves alone. And so forgive us for that and help us by way of your spirit in us. Change us. Help us to consider others as more important than ourselves. Help us to be people who who not only look to our own interests, but the interests of others. Help us in that. Please change us. Change us. We thank you for your word, for teaching us through your word. We give you praise and glory for it. And I pray for these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.